0: Comprehensive, relevant, and insightful conversations about health and medicine happen here on MedStarHealth.talk. The color of your skin, the community you belong to, and the place you call home are the largest predictors of health and longevity, according to a recent article in Stanford Medicine Magazine. These and other non medical factors are called social determinants of health. Today, we are going to learn more about what that is and what the healthcare community is doing about it. I'm really pleased to have as our guests, Dr. Lucas Carlson, an emergency department physician at MedStar Union Memorial Hospital and the Regional Medical Director of Care Transformation in Baltimore City for MedStar Health. And Dr. Andrea Gaspar, an internal medicine physician and medical director of the MedStar Mobile Health Center. She's also the director of health equity and community outreach for the MedStar Internal Medicine Residency Program in Baltimore. I'm your host, Deborah Schindler. Thank you both for being here. Thank you for having us.
1: Thanks, Deb. Really excited to be here.
0: As a Baltimore emergency room physician, Dr. Carlson, I know there's never a dull moment in the ED. But tell me about your other title, what is care transformation?
1: I think we've all seen patients fall through the cracks, and we all recognize that the way that the health system works right now, it wasn't really built for our patients. And so what care transformation is, is trying to see how we can rebuild the health system, redesign the health system, so that we're really serving the patients that we're here to take care of. Here at MedStar, what it comes down to is really focusing on social determinants of health, which I know we're about to talk about soon, access to care and care transitions, particularly in that gap that can occur when a patient leaves the hospital, and uh, community engagement, engaging with the community is really getting outside of the four walls of the hospital to take care of them.
0: Has your work with the emergency department opened your eyes to some of the, um, the social determinants of health? How did you get involved?
1: Yeah, that? in the emergency department, you see every day issues of patients coming in where it's not really about what their medical condition is. I mean, they're coming in because they are short of breath or they have chest pain or they have abdominal pain. But the real reason that they're coming in is because they might not have been able to get their medications or they didn't have food that night or they didn't have shelter, and so they ended up developing pneumonia. So we see this all the time. For example, there was one patient that we would see come in probably about once a month on a regular basis for his asthma, and he would have an asthma exacerbation. And we would treat him, he would get steroids, and then he would go home. But we knew that the real issue was that he wasn't able to get into primary care and that he wasn't able to get his medications filled. And if he had those controller medications, he wouldn't have come back to the emergency department. So every time he would come into the emergency department, we kind of felt like we were kicking the can down the road. We were kicking the can down the road to the next time he came in and then just treating the emergent condition at that point. And so what it came down to is that we needed to get him into primary care. So we worked with our community health advocate, got him into primary care, and he hasn't been back to the emergency department since and hasn't had an asthma exacerbation since.
0: The use of the emergency department, I think, has gone for a long time as a primary care practice for many people in the city.
1: It's true. It's true. Um, I always think that no one comes to the emergency department because they want to come to the emergency department. They come to the emergency department because they trust the hospital and they trust the ED as someplace that they can go. And that they know that it, they need help. And so, yeah, there's a lot of patients that come to the pri- come to the ED for their primary care. That often boils down to the fact that they can't get into a primary care provider or don't know how to get into a primary care provider. So this is one of the things that we're really working on in care transformation is trying to figure out ways that we can leverage the fact that they're in the hospital, leverage the fact that we have this unique access to the patient to help them navigate into primary care, to navigate into longitudinal outpatient care that might be able to provide some of the supports that we can't provide in the ED.
0: Okay. Are we seeing su- success with that?
1: Absolutely. We've started to see real uh, successes. For example, that case that I talked about, patient was also every time he came to the ED would be prescribed steroids, and steroids cause weight gain. And so that patient, after we were able to get him connected with primary care, he was able to come off steroids and lost 40 pounds in the course of six months. Wow.
0: So these are real measurable strategies that are now in place with care transformation. Wonderful. Dr. Gaspar, let's talk about the Mobile Health Center. MedStar Health was one of the first hospitals in the nation to go into the communities with COVID-19 vaccines. The system received national media attention for providing health care for the at-risk and vulnerable adults in underserved neighborhoods. How does your role as the medical director of the mobile unit fit in with care transformation?
2: Yeah, you know, I think a lot of what we're doing with the mobile health clinic really fits well with what Dr. Carlson said. He talked about um, engaging the community, addressing social determinants of health and really giving patients access to the healthcare system. When he said that, I was like, you know, I think the mobile health clinic, it truly does all of that. We go out every week. We go to the same sites uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and we're about to expand our practice to four days a week. Um, And we provide care to patients um, and primary care to patients in the community. And we uh, provide access by decreasing geographic barriers, um, providing which means
0: which means what
2: yeah geographic barriers um we're you know we're out in the community right so we actually go out there um, we park at locally known organizations and organizations that are trusted in the community and so people see us and we're there at the same location every week the same time every day so people know that we're there um, and they can come and just knock on our door they don't have to go into a brick and mortar location, into four walls, ask, you know, to talk to the doctor or the secretary, you know, make a phone call. They can just come walk in. Yeah. Um, so, you know, in a way, I think, too, I mentioned, you know, geographic barriers, but I think also that barrier of trust um, is something that I see a lot with patients. They don't necessarily trust the healthcare system or trust doctors. And I think by just simply being out there and going to them and bringing health care to them. It makes them feel a lot more welcome and comfortable, and comfortable with just walking walking through our door, knocking on our door, and asking to be seen. When you're bringing
0: healthcare to them, what exactly are you bringing them? You're administering care in the mobile health center. We
2: are, or... yeah in uh, in the mobile health center. So yeah, so it is a large. I guess it's like an RV is how I would best characterize it. It's about the size of a, a bus, um, and it has two full exam rooms. Um, they are fully equipped we're we're literally a fully equipped clinic um we even have a little ultrasound machine if we need to do some bedside ultrasound and so we provide primary care um full primary care we can also do like urgent care like walk-ins really we don't have like an x-ray machine to look at fractures and stuff but we are in the process of getting some equipment just to treat like kind of small strains and sprains and things like that. Um, So really the main thing, though, is just we are a full primary care clinic um, and we manage chronic conditions. Um, We also give vaccines, do preventative care, women's health, also addiction management, lots of different things.
0: So anybody can just walk up and say, I, yeah. I I have a heart palpitation. I think I should be checked out. Yeah,
2: yeah. We have an EKG machine. We can do that. So yeah, we can really, we can take anyone and we um, will take any insurance. Uh, we have kind of policies and procedures in place so that we aren't so limited to just what's in network with MedStar. Um, so we are open. Open for anyone who comes through the door.
0: (laughs) In the beginning, in the intro, I identified Stanford magazine, how they described social determinants of health. And, and, And to repeat that, they said the color of your skin, the community you belong to and the place you call home are the largest predictors of health and longevity. Do you agree with that? Is that how you would define social determinants of health? And are you seeing that, for instance, when you
2: go into the community? I I definitely am seeing that. I feel like the social determinants of health play an incredibly large part of my medical care um, and my patients on a daily basis. I, you know, I do, I do agree with that to, to an extent. I mean, I think there are caveats to everything, but I mean, there's data, and Dr. Carlson can chime in too, right, that like social determinants of health contribute to like the majority of population health outcomes. Like I've read anywhere between like 55% to even 80%. And the way I... Wait a minute. Can you explain that percentage?
1: Yeah. Yeah. uh, So when they've looked at what drives health outcomes, only about 20% of what drives health outcomes is the medical care that we provide. Are the medications we prescribe, the lab tests that we do, the surgeries that we do, the other 80% is made up of health behaviors, social and economic factors, such as access to food, housing, things like that, and the environment in which you live. And so when it comes down to the biggest contributor, your health outcomes are social determinants and health behaviors.
0: More so than perhaps DNA or
2: your genetics?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And that ties, and that all ties together too.
2: Well, I think too, you know, another important point, and the way I think about it too is that social determinants are termed by like the root cause of kind of health disparities or health outcomes. Really, I think too, it kind of ties into this eighty percent, right? Because if we can't have help someone get to their doctor's appointment or get their medication, right? Just like a simple example, um, if they don't have transportation to get to the pharmacy or the clinic, or they don't have money to pay their copay or pay for their medications anything that we do as a medical intervention is just kind of like futile. Um, And so I think, you know, in addition to that 80 percent is also this idea that they're like the foundation of kind of people being able to actually get the care they need.
0: Okay, so I think it's pretty clear how housing insecurity would play into your health care if you're homeless. Yeah, Transportation access is pretty obvious. Social isolation. I think that's pretty clear. Food insecurity. But sexism, homophobia and racism are identified, too as social determinants of health. How do you explain that? I'm trying to understand what this the social determinants of health is yeah. and how yeah. the healthcare community can work. Yeah, with I
2: mean I think I think stigma, right? All of those things that you mentioned are kind of encompassed under the umbrella of of stigma. And I think that dramatically impacts Healthcare in many many ways. So I mean, there's many many kinds of stigma, right? There's stigma against like gender identity, sexuality, racism, um, even the way people look, right? Obesity patients that suffer from obesity also, um, you know, suffer from poor quality medical care. Unfortunately, um, in part because of how they're treated, isolation. There's um, the isolation, yeah, isolation, and also just kind of like limitations and certain things with like the physician patient interaction. And it also goes into kind of these historical things too, right? And I think that might be a whole other podcast episode, right? Talking about like historical racism um, and structural factors that cause stigma. I, I think there are kind of like... The individual—it um, comes back to the trust that you mentioned before. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, absolutely. So I think with the individual provider component, right? There's, it's really the the trust component, right? It, is huge. Um, but when populations and kind of um, at-risk populations, minority populations have been stigmatized by our healthcare system, as well as just kind of like by our governmental systems and education systems, all of these different systems for many generations, it results in this, this lack of trust. Um, And then it also results in these kind of more concrete things like economic insecurity and living in neighborhoods that are more socially deprived and not having resources, um, not getting, you know, adequate education, which then I think leads to like this downstream effect of poor health and poor health outcomes. So it's really all just like tied together from this big structural lens
0: With you being an emergency room physician, Dr. Carlson, I'm guessing that you see a lot of these things that we're discussing, the distrust perhaps, people using primary care in the emergency room, but how some of these social determinants of health manifest themselves?
1: Really impact patients' health, yeah. No, we see it all the time. I think one of the biggest ones, and you mentioned it before, is housing. We see patients come in all the time that lack housing, and unfortunately I think that's one of the biggest gaps here in Baltimore City. We can do all of the work that we can as navigating patients to resources, but there's just not enough housing in the city for the people that need it. And so the effects of that are broad and varied. Some of them are direct impacts of, being being homeless or not having a place to sleep, developing things like wounds on your feet, developing things like cold exposure. Um, And some of them are a little less concrete and a little less you wouldn't think about them necessarily. If you don't have a home, then you don't have a place to cook your meals, and then you're probably eating food that's less healthy. And you can develop conditions like diabetes, hypertension, high cholesterol, and that those lead to heart attacks, vascular disease, and all
0: So our living conditions at some level dictate why some people are healthier than others and why some should be healthier than they are. The CDC, or the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, breaks down social determinants of health into five categories, and I'd like to get your input on each one. Help us understand the impact of each on a person's health and well-being. And the first one is economic stability. How does that play in as a social determinant of health? How does that prevent people from getting the health care that they need?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it's economic stability is huge. You know, unfortunately, illness can be pretty costly and uh, there's a lot of different factors that play into that cost. A lot of it depends on kind of like the type of insurance that you have, um, whether or not you have insurance uh, and what kinds of diseases you have. Um, and so a lot of times, you know, even if someone is adequately, adequately covered with insurance, um, they might have high copays or something like that that are prohibitive and allowing them to get the best medication that they can get. You know, that's the like kind of the most like direct one related to healthcare. But then I think there are all, all of these other things, right? If somebody is economically constrained. They're just trying to, you know, get their resources and sorts so that they can pay for pay for food, right? and and just put some food on the table. And they're struggling to survive. And so any extra resources or money that they might have, they're going to probably go into survival, not necessarily into their healthcare if it's something that is not essential.
1: Yeah, just to just to add on to that, we recently had a patient in our food RX program. This is the food pharmacy program. Um, that's based out at Good Samaritan Hospital. They mentioned that they had such limited resources that they were only having one meal a day because that's all that they could afford. And so, because of that, they developed malnutrition, they developed vi- uh, vitamin deficiencies, and their diabetes was worsened.
0: The Food Rx program. Yeah,
1: e- exactly. So, we have a number of different strategies throughout the care transformation department to focus on specific uh, social determinants of health. And this is one of those targeted uh, strategies focusing on food insecurity and specifically food insecurity for patients that have concomitant um, diet sensitive conditions like diabetes, high cholesterol, heart failure, things that can get much worse if you don't have the appropriate diet. And so we initially launched this program at Good Samaritan about two years ago, and then launched a satellite clinic down at Harbor hospital. And actually in the process of planning for launching a new program at Franklin square hospital as well. Wow! And I- the idea is to provide enough food for the patient for 10 meals per week for them and their entire household. And, the food is completely tailored to their medical condition. And we've seen dramatic impacts on health outcomes.
0: Where does that food come from?
1: It's a combination. Uh, so there's a lot of attention that's being uh, drawn to food as medicine. That's the whole idea here is that instead of providing medications, we're providing actual food as medicine. This is a novel approach. It's still in development. It's still kind of in a pilot phase. And so MedStar is helping to uh, contribute to this, as well as other philanthropy organizations, the Stolman Foundation, the Maryland Community Health Resource Commission, um, and we're working with Baltimore City and the Department of Food and Planning.
0: Wonderful. So one of the other categories identified by the CDC is education, access, and quality. That's a curious topic to understand how that plays into the social
2: determinants of health. Dr. Gaspar? Yeah. You know, I think, again, like with uh, financial stability, education plays into um, healthcare, and definitely, like, Multifactorial ways. So, yeah, I think uh, I think the first thing that comes to my mind, and again, that's probably more directly related to healthcare, is just like is healthcare literacy. You know, medicine in healthcare is hard to understand, and and both of those things are separate, right? There's like understanding healthcare itself and how to navigate the healthcare system, which is a challenge, including for myself. Um, and then there's like understanding medicine and and your own medical conditions and why it's important to you know do things for them and take care of them and so I think when somebody has not had the best education, it makes it just that much harder to kind of even just grasp like what these big words are and, and kind of these weird names of these medications that we give people. That's a huge thing. And then, I, you know, I think it can also just play into overall you're not having adequate education. Um, if you haven't had good education, maybe the types of jobs that you Ultimately, get are um, limited, and again, kind of relating into like this financial instability and struggling to tr- survive, and all of those different things. But no, I sure. think
1: I think healthcare literacy is yeah. one of the key factors there. Yeah. Patients just yeah. need to understand what their health condition is, what the yeah. medications are, um, how they're supposed to take it, and I, we see a lot of barriers with that. Whether it's yeah. just understanding what their discharge yeah. instructions are.
2: Oh, for sure. And I think, you know, the way that you kind of have to just like break down what diseases are, you really have to break it down into something that is so simple. And, and as doctors, you know, we go through all the schooling and all this training and literally what we're actually doing for most of that is learning a language and patients don't speak that language at all. So I think that, you know, it's absolutely crucial to like break things down and Ways that patients can understand in order to kind of address the social determinant of health that you're discussing.
0: Isn't it interesting and sad too how one failure can lead to another failure? Absolutely, yeah, it's all intertwined and mm-hmm. very messy. The other category that the CDC identified is healthcare access and quality, and we've kind of talked about that a little bit. But um, I mean, it, it, it's it's certainly clear that people who live in certain communities or have low income, may not have a car, may not have mm-hmm. access to a bus or may not be able to get to a doctor's appointment, especially when they have a chronic condition and they need repeat appointments weekly or monthly or dialysis yeah. or yeah, you
1: know, dialysis is huge. We see that all the time. The patients that are supposed to go in three <laughs> times a week, but they can't get in patients having to go three times a week. That doesn't leave them time to have a job, yeah. be able to take care of their family. We've seen really, really sad health outcomes that have just caused by the fact that I can't be admitted to the hospital because I have to stay at home and take care of my child and I don't have anyone else that can take care of them.
0: The other category is neighborhood and build environment. High rates of violence and other health safety risks could impact your health, yeah. your health equity.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think this one is is huge, especially in Baltimore. I mean, you know, I live in a neighborhood where I can go out and I can go for a jog. And I've even gone for a jog when it's dark out, which maybe isn't the best choice. But, you know, it, it's generally fine. Um, whereas other people are too afraid to go outside and walk. So how are they going to get exercise? And, you know, it's easy enough for me to tell a patient, oh, you need to walk for 100, do something that gets your heart rate up for 150 minutes per week. But, you know, if they can't get outside and do that, where are they going to do it? Yeah, there are so many things for the social of health that play into it. But, you know, then there's like the food access, right? Um, Where we are with the mobile health clinic, it's a food desert. It's also a healthcare desert. But there's just, I mean, there are not a lot of grocery stores out there. Explain that phrase. Healthcare desert? Yes. Yeah, I recently heard it and thought it was great. I mean, it's a whole, if you look at the map of, like, South Baltimore, um, where we go, right, it's just this very convoluted area with all these kind of, like, smaller neighborhoods within a bigger, bigger region of Baltimore City. And there's just hardly any healthcare. There are hardly any primary care clinics. I mean, and I feel like we're truly just serving, like, a very crucial need down there um, because— there's just there's like a handful of them and a couple of them are even closing down now. So it's just like, you know, we've had patients come in and they're like, yeah, my doctor's leaving. The center is not open. So there's not enough. Um, there's not enough primary care in, in certain neighborhoods.
0: Which leads us to the final category by the CDC, which is social and community context, because many people face challenges and dangers that they can't control in their neighborhoods, unsafe neighborhoods, discrimination or trouble affording things. Identify how that would have a negative impact on your health care.
1: Yeah, we see this a lot in Baltimore City. In Baltimore City, depending on what neighborhood you grow up in, there can be a 20-year gap in what your life expectancy is. Someone that's born in Cherry Hill or Curtis Bay has a life expectancy of uh, 65 to 70 years old, whereas someone that's Mm -hmm. born in Roland Park, Homeland, North Baltimore City has a life expectancy of 85 years. Yep. And you wow. never think about these things, about how much the place that you live, the place that you grow up, the place where you're born impacts your health. And it's really multifactorial. I think that gets to the point that Dr. Gaspar was saying before, is that all of these things are intertwined. All of these things are woven together into this uh, structure in which someone lives. and And that's really what dictates their health.
0: And talking about it as we are, it seems perfectly clear, but... It seems like it's only come about in the last few years that we're even talking about it or hearing about social determinants of health. It's become a phrase that we didn't hear five years ago.
1: And I think it's for the best. I think Mm -hmm. this is something that we've needed to address for so long. And I think the public health community has been shouting from the rooftops about the need to really address these social needs. But it's only been in the past few years that the lay public, the politicians, the hospital administrations have really started to realize that this is something that we need to invest in. If we really want to see better health outcomes. And it also ties back to equity, too. I think that we've really seen an appropriate and dramatic attention focus on health equity. And a lot of these socioeconomic factors that we're talking about are what drive those disparities that we see in health and health outcomes in our communities.
0: So it does raise the question, is it fair to physicians, nurses and medical professionals to carry the burden of these kinds of problems? Or should it fall more on politicians and and social workers and community leaders?
1: That's one of my favorite questions because, (laughs) because, because the thing is, is that there are doctors and nurses that go above and beyond every day to help a patient find housing for the night, to help a patient get clothed before they leave the emergency department to help a patient get into a outpatient primary care clinic. But that's them going above and beyond. So yeah, it's part of their job, but what we really need is system changes. We need things that are systematic, things that will help patients without someone having to go above and beyond. That's something that's part of the way that the healthcare system functions. And that's, again, the idea behind care transformation. How can we transform the way that we deliver care to include those things?
0: Everybody really has to get involved because, I mean, I've seen it myself here at MedStar Health, how emergency room staff pay out of pocket, their own pocket, mm-hmm. um, for taxis or um, bringing clothing and, and provide clothing for the homeless. And there's a uh, lot of
1: different things that we do every day. Yeah, as I think you mentioned helping with housing, helping with transportation, helping with food and clothing. They're human beings in front of you, and yeah. so when you see a human yeah. being in that situation,
0: let's talk about those positives. What is the healthcare community doing? What are we doing in the healthcare industry to promote greater health equity?
2: You know, I think um, one of the main changes is something that we've already discussed is, is honestly just kind of recognizing the importance of these, of these needs, having conversations about them and people recognizing that they're important. From my perspective, um, as uh, Director of Health Equity for our residency program, we're talking a whole lot more about kind of health equity and social determinants from an educational perspective um, uh, than, than my experience, um, at least in med school. And so I think you know, recognizing that in training our future physicians, um, that social determinants of health are a crucial part of healthcare um, is definitely uh, one of the things that is uh, w- much more pervasive now in medical education discourse. And I'm sure there are many other things that are being done.
1: I mean, one of the other things is the payment model. The way that healthcare yeah. has been traditionally paid for is something called fee for service where you get paid by the by the number of th- services that you provide, by the number of EKGs you do, by the number of CAT scans that you do. And this has worked okay for the past 10, 20, 40 years. But what we're moving more towards is value-based care and the idea that you're getting that hospital systems, healthcare systems are being reimbursed for the actual value of the healthcare that they're delivering to the patient.
0: Dr. Carlson, what is MedStar Health doing specifically to address the social determinants of health?
1: We have a whole, whole host of programs across the gamut uh, based out of MedStar Union Memorial, MedStar Harbor Hospital, MedStar Good Samaritan, and MedStar Franklin Square. These programs do all sorts of different things. We have the Community Health Advocate Program that works with patients to, to connect them with social resources. We have the Peer Recovery Coach Program that helps to um, work with patients with substance use disorder or that have addiction to connect them with treatment programs. There's the ED multi-visit patient program or the MVP program, as we like to call it, to work with those patients that come back time and time again to the emergency department so we don't have to feel like we are kicking the can down the road like I was saying before. And then there's the transitional care program. The transitional care program involves nurses that call patients after their discharge and really help to work with them to make sure that they get back into primary care, that they understand their discharge instructions. All those things where patients would otherwise fall through the cracks.
0: Can you elaborate on the um, Healthcare Advocacy Program?
1: Our community health advocates are magic makers. The things that I've seen them do is amazing. What they do is that they meet patients, uh, they talk with them about what their social needs are and start to try to get an idea of what those social determinants are that are impacting their health. They then work with them to connect them with resources like Social Security, uh, the SNAP program or food access programs, uh, housing if it's available. Um, and then they also help them to get reconnected with primary care.
0: So they help them find doctors, they help them make appointments.
1: Uh, yeah, find doctors, make appointments, get health insurance if they don't have health insurance. And these are all things that don't traditionally happen within a health system. Right. Really proud of the work that they're doing.
0: Absolutely. What about the Safe Streets program? How does that fit in?
1: The Safe Streets program is part of the uh, violence prevention ecosystem that uh, the mayor and the Baltimore City is really developing right now. And so here at MedStar, we employ violence responders that are based in our emergency departments. Violence responders meet with patients that are victims or perpetrators of violence, and they help to try to what's called break the cycle of violence, to try to prevent any sort of retaliation, but then also to try to work those patients and connect them with social resources to meet their needs, and so that they don't feel, so that they're not part of that violence um, that might have actually triggered the violence in the first place. Um, the, one of the next areas that we focus on is uh, care transitions and access to care. Um, so one of the programs that we have focusing on that is our transitional care nurse program. And so for this program, patients that are seen to be high risk for readmission or high risk for poor health outcomes, a nurse will call uh, call them within two days of discharge and continue to work with them for up to 30 days after they're discharged to make sure that they have their medications, that they understand their discharge instructions, that they are able to get in to see their primary care, to make sure that they don't fall through those cracks. And that's one of the biggest things that we're trying to do is weave all these programs together to create that safety net to support our patients.
2: I think from a humanistic perspective, it is important to to care. Um, And I think also all of these structural disparities, um, just as we were talking about how all of the social determinants of health are intertwined, um, you know, all people are intertwined and all structures of society are intertwined. And it is not possible to go through life without kind of being directly or indirectly affected by these inequities. Makes me think of Michael Jackson's song The Man in the Mirror. Like <laughs> <That's> your
0: intro. <laughs> yeah. We've been talking with doctors Lucas Carlson and Andrea Gaspar at Medstar Union Memorial Hospital in Baltimore. Thank you for sharing your expertise here on Talk. Thanks for having us. Thanks nice Deb. For more information about any of the community health services Medstar Health provides, go to Medstarhealth.org backslash community health.